It's difficult on all fronts, right? One is they are paranoid. They are always suspicious of any foreigner. I'm from Singapore. So the good thing is that it's seen as a neutral country and it gave us a lot of credence in North Korea, being from Singapore, being from Southeast Asia. And we also bring that philosophy of Singapore is not the most ideological, at least on some of these things. We believe that you take approaches that work for the country in terms of developing the country and improving people's lives. That's it. They are paranoid. It is very hard to work with a system where most people just do not understand what's going on. Like the people in power are still very old. You can educate a small group of people, then they have to go share and educate the rest of the system. That is not easy, right? Because you can bring someone out, they see what's happening and they come back and say, hey, you know, this makes sense. But when they go back in there, they would then have to convince 200 other people that say, hey, this is the right way to do things. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 93, part one of the So This My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Jeffrey C. Now, Jeffrey has achieved many things in his life. Just name a few. He graduated from Yale and Wharton Business School. He was a bank consultant, and he has a co-founder, a social enterprise that created the largest training program for female entrepreneurs in North Korea which ended up being profiled in the Harvard Business School case study. He also helped to launch a blockchain protocol that had a $2 billion coin cap at its peak. He is a Digital Currency Task Force member and Consumer Protection Report author at the World Economic Forum, Global Council for Digital Currency Governance, and an Ethereum Foundation Fellow. He's also a Kaufman Fellow and now runs a Y-combinator-backed startup focused on building DAOs to empower the next generation of investors, entrepreneurs, and creators. Now, we couldn't possibly cover everything that Jeffrey has done before, so in my interview, we focus on two things. Firstly, his work with Chosen Exchange, the pioneering social enterprise in North Korea that was profiled as a HBS case study and reported in the likes of the BBC, Financial Times, The Economics, The Atlantic, and The Straits Times. And it was also, by the way, cited as part of the rationale for Singapore hosting the first summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un in 2018. Secondly, we covered his current work with Poco in a Web3 space. As both of these works are quite distinct, I've actually split his story into two parts. That's why you have part one and part two. So in part one, what you get is Jeffrey's childhood, what he was like growing up, how he ended up in the world of social entrepreneurship in, of all places, North Korea. We covered things like what it's really like working there. Why the women are considered to be incredibly entrepreneurial, what a North Korean power couple looks like, and how he built trust in such a close society. And as for part two, we talked about all things Web3. So, are you ready for part one? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. As a child, I used to have this very strange relationship with authority. When I was in secondary school, I actually skipped out my last year. Half the year, I did most of my studying at home on my own. I didn't feel like school was the right place to learn the things I needed to learn. Aren't you Singaporean? So this is hugely unusual anywhere, especially in Singapore. Yeah, it's kind of a strange path. I went through this phase of secondary school. There was a year where I was very competitive. Then there was a year where I felt like, oh, you know, what's the point of all this studying? Is it just for grades? Is it just competition versus learning something? 
I go through these weird existential questions around studying and schooling. Then when I got to junior college or high school, I skipped a lot of school. I actually managed to get onto a program in the U.S. at the Walton School in the University of Pennsylvania. I spent a month away from school doing a program there. And I think it really opened up my eyes in terms of the opportunities from around the world. Meeting people from so many different places gave me that thirst for exploring the rest of the world. In junior college too, very much the same thing where I skipped a lot of school, did a lot of studying at home, did fairly well, I think academically, but just kind of always had that urge to challenge authority. So I remember trying to organize once, inviting a series of political speakers to the school. The principal called me to the office and he was like, no, you cannot invite opposition candidates to speak here. Why don't you invite someone from the ruling party? And I was like, what's the point of that? <laughs> so, so upset about it. It's a bit of a history for me back many years ago when I was still young, I guess. <laughs> So when you were young, was it just this need to go against authority to see how far you could push, but no overarching idea of where exactly you wanted to be? Yeah, I guess I had a soft kind of, I guess a soft spot for the underdog. I always felt there is such an imbalance in power, in equity. And I always felt compelled to say, oh, how do I support people who are excluded? How do I support people who are the underdogs? And I think that's been a team that is after a while became remarkably consistent in my life and it extends to the work I do today and in various parts of my career too. You said when you went to Wharton that your eyes were open. Were there particular instances or people that allow you to just be aware that there's so much opportunity out there? Yeah. So at that time, University of Pennsylvania was considered too dangerous to put high school kids because we are basically in West Philadelphia. It's a rougher part of town. I think just for safety, for liability reasons, they put us up in the suburbs and then they drove us down every day through a part of Philadelphia called North Philly. North Philly is rough. It's a very rough neighborhood. And I remember on one of the trips through North Philly to campus, I saw a funeral march for a girl that I, looking at a picture, I would say maybe it was like eight, 10 years old who got gunned down in the streets. It left a really deep impression on me. I wanted to explore these issues of urban inequality and made my way to do my undergraduate in Penn and did a lot of work in West and North Philadelphia during my time at university. I noticed that you also set up Wharton's social impact major. Yeah, so that was quite a fun experiment. We started out doing this experimental class under a very remarkable professor called Ira Hakkavi, who pays a lot of attention to civic engagement and how universities interact with their surrounding community. There's this whole thing of town and gown. A lot of universities tend to be very wealthy, very privileged, and often in communities that are very underprivileged. You look at University of Chicago, you look at Penn, to some extent, Stanford and East Palo Alto, Columbia and the Bronx area. You know, very often they are in neighborhoods that are very underprivileged. There is generally a question of how these places interacting with their neighborhood and whether they're contributing to it or in some way actually resulting in gentrification and increasing the divide in the community. So through this professor, we did a lot of work setting up a healthcare project, basically kind of community-based healthcare project in West Philadelphia. You can think of it as a first DAO in some way. And out of that, I really like this idea of learning from doing. And we built this major with the university with the idea of incorporating service elements into broader concepts of how does business make social impact? How do they have a broader social responsibility? Which sounds very much like a social enterprise. So was that your thought, I'm going to come back to Singapore, start some kind of social enterprise and help the people? Yeah, I explored a few things before I did that. I thought for a while, I wrote some papers on corporate social responsibility. 
And I thought maybe I should go on to an academic career. I think what happened was that in between undergraduate and graduate school, I started a nonprofit called Chosen Exchange to do training in the weirdest of places for women entrepreneurs in North Korea. You know, North Korea at that point in time was very different from North Korea today. It was very unknown. There was hardly very much written about it. I had somehow managed to make my way there many years ago to basically when I was interning in China. 2007, right? This was 2007. What was really surprising to me was meeting a number of young North Koreans, especially this female university student. I was very surprised because I went in there thinking, oh, it's a communist country. No one is interested in these topics. She told me that, oh, I want to learn business to show that women can be good business leaders. It's shocking to me because I was like, oh, you know, you're a communist country and you want to learn about businesses. At the same time, you have a very strong personal ambition. Like you want to prove something. I think before I come into the country, I had all the stereotypes of it. And when I was leaving, she asked, how can I help? She said, can you bring an economics textbook the next time you came? And I thought, oh, that sounds simple enough. Turns out it wasn't that easy. I just thought, oh, here's something small that I can do to make an impact on someone's life. And that kind of got me started on the journey. I wanted to unpack that conversation you had in two ways. Firstly, I saw that in other interviews, you mentioned this particular conversation when you asked about politics. And she also said, but politics is for men. I wonder if you could just unpack that just to understand what was the perception there or even now for women in politics? It's very interesting, right? We focus on women entrepreneurs in the country mainly because North Korea is a very patriarchal society. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s, the economy collapsed in North Korea. It was the woman who went out to build the first kind of more autonomous businesses, businesses that have characteristics of a private businesses because a lot of the males had to stay in a government position. So it was a woman who went out to participate in the market, to make a living, to keep themselves and their families alive. And that became the genesis of early stage kind of market economy in North Korea. So there was a very interesting area to focus on because by the time we went in there, they had built more sophisticated businesses. They understood how to run an independent business. And there's a reason why we had a focus on things. So we had this very weird, I would say, contrast where you have a lot of female businesswomen who are fairly successful in a country that is very patriarchal. So the men were all in politics. It did not even help the women to run the business. Kind of very interesting. Like we run this workshop. Some workshops are more entrepreneurial focus, some are more policy focus, where we had to educate government officials on what some of these things mean, some of these changes that we're observing, or we want to encourage them to consider. And very often the ones where it's government focus would be 80% male, and the one that kind of business focus would tend to be, I would say, generally fairly equal or, or even sometimes majority female. So yeah, that's the contrast. It's quite interesting too, because there's this concept of a power couple in North Korea where the wife is in business and the husband is in government because connections there still matter a lot. So there's this leverage, navigating government matters a lot. What does business mean in the context of North Korea? Because I was digging through the blog that you were keeping when you were at Poco and you would post about all the different developments every single month. I noticed that as you were talking about, for instance, the kind of lessons you were teaching, you had to take out all references to capitalism. And that for me was such a strange idea. I mean, business, how can you take out capitalism? What do you have left? I know it's a very weird, you know, people there are not dumb. I think they're smart. They're curious. They do want to learn about the rest of the world. I think they, they want change in their own pace. Some people want change to come faster. Some people are more frightened or uncertain about it. 
they know that economies around the world have developed so much more quickly than North Korea. So they also have to catch up. But at the same time, I think there is that lingering concern to make this transition in thinking is very difficult. You know, you have a lot of people who cling on to an older ideology. And there is also the fact that they see themselves in competition with China and South Korea. They would be seen as, you know, what differentiates you from your neighbors? And I think that's something that they always struggled with, given the politics of the Korean peninsula. I suppose, how does a business survive and what's the relations with the politics? My understanding from my reading career, I mean, by wrong, is that you can set up your own business, but it's very much they have to park it as sort of like an unofficial arm of the government and that's how they survive, but they can maintain a portion of the profits for themselves. Is that yeah. how they always set it up? Business, I think, exists in a few different ways. And so now I'm in the blockchain space and I see the parallels. In North Korea, you could have a business that say, I just do not set up anything official. I will just run it do my thing. I provide a service, people pay me for it. Challenge with this kind of small unofficial businesses is that they are very hard to scale up because you need things like capital lending. You need to register to own property, to buy property, to have assets. So those are some of the challenges you'd face. And then to do a more scalable businesses or one that has more private characteristics, what a lot of entrepreneurs do is that they say, oh, I find a state-owned company or enterprise to sponsor me. I set up an entity under the state-owned enterprise and in return, we have some sort of profit-sharing agreement with the state-owned enterprise. In the blockchain space, we talk about DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, and you see the same thing where you have unincorporated DAOs who believe that, hey, you know, I'm decentralized. Why should I be regulated? Why should I be registered? Then you have DAOs say, hey, I need to register because the reality is that things are messy and I still need to deal with a lot of off-chain things, right? Where I need a legal entity to sign contracts, to own assets, to make sure someone can sue me or sue someone if something goes wrong. So that's that's the environment we saw in North Korea back then. I noticed a timeline when you started Chosun, it was around December 2008, but you were also at Bain between 2011 and 2012. So how did that work out? I started Chosun Exchange on a very much a bootstrap budget. You know, we had very little money. We raised some money through a mix of donations, some small grants. And I did it for a while. Then at some point, I just said, oh, I do need to go back and make an income. I had an offer from Bain from university days. I took a year and a half off to work on what I was working on. And I felt, okay, it's time to go back there and, you know, also learn some skills and save some money. But I wanted to keep things alive. So I kind of ran it on the site. And then when I was back in the US, we raised our first, in a sense, institutional funding. We actually received a grant from some foundations and that allowed me to go back to work on it full time. What were the main concerns of, say, these foundations that you were working with? And I believe you also built partnerships with North Korean universities as well. Yeah, we were quite lucky when we started because we had some funding from the foundations. We actually got some support from the U.S. State Department. The key concerns we had to raise, it wasn't as severe at a point in time, but you know, over time it became much more important. But from the early days, one of the big things we had to do was sanctions compliance. Like making sure that we had a clear policy, we make sure that everything we did was in compliance with sanctions and, and how we do our due diligence around people we work with or people we involve in the program. It wasn't as severe at a point in time, but you know, over time it became much more important. I think the other part that was just very tricky was North Korea is a very, very uniquely difficult problem to solve. It creates a lot of emotional responses. You know, so everyone thinks everyone in North Korea is bad. The government has brainwashed everyone. What we try to do is we have to say it's much more complex as a society, right? So one is that most people would be like, oh, they're entrepreneurs in North Korea. 
I didn't even know that. So trying to get people to understand these things was important and to let them know like what our theory of change was and why it was important. I think as time passed, one of the big challenges was that there was both a loss of interest in the issue in North Korea. People felt more and more helpless in terms of what they can do to make the situation on the ground better. We saw a loss of interest in the North Korea issue over time from government or public policy angle. I think the second thing is just that there has never been a very coordinated or long-term thinking around the issue. I think very often people were always looking for short-term solutions. The only time they became a priority is when they're launching rockets and testing nukes. I was trying to understand that space and you were talking about, oh, people are surprised that they're entrepreneurs there. I was also surprised so when I came across what you were doing. And back into it, I learned that North Korea was focused very heavily at the time on hard infrastructure. So roads and equipment as a solution to the development problems, as opposed to soft infrastructure, which is precisely what you were bringing in. What's the rule of law? What are these monetary policies? How do you apply? Was it hard to get buying? I mean, you got from the US, but was it hard to get buying from the locals as well? You are a complete foreigner. Why are you coming here? Yeah, it's difficult on all fronts, right? One is they are paranoid. They are always suspicious of any foreigner. I'm from Singapore. So the good thing is that it's seen as a neutral country and it gave us a lot of credence in North Korea, being from Singapore, being from Southeast Asia. And we also bring that philosophy of Singapore is not the most ideological, at least on some of these things. We believe that you take approaches that work for the country in terms of developing the country and improving people's lives. That's it. They are paranoid. It is very hard to work with a system where most people just do not understand what's going on. Like the people in power are still very old. You can educate a small group of people, then they have to go share and educate the rest of the system. That is not easy, right? Because you can bring someone out, they see what's happening and they come back and say, hey, you know, this makes sense. But when they go back in there, they would then have to convince 200 other people that say, hey, this is the right way to do things. So very challenging. You're right. I think, and this, I feel a government issue in most parts of the world. Hard infrastructure is always easier to show as signs of success than soft infrastructure. Building the right system, building the right ecosystem is a very long-term thing. It's not something you can point to very concrete outcomes. And it takes time. It takes experimentation. Whereas if you build a building, you point to it as, hey, look, I've built a building. Who cares that the building is not supporting the ecosystem in the right way? So I think always a huge challenge and obviously it runs up against sometimes like many decades of ingrained thinking that is always very difficult. So how did you overcome or work alongside this paranoia? How do you build that trust? We try to understand it, you know, as people, we try to understand these people, right? There are processes. We may not agree with a lot of the way things work, but the last thing we want to do is say, oh, look, you know, it's just a bunch of crazy people. We cannot understand what they're doing. So there is a rationale, there is a process for many things that happen there. And part of the trick of getting things done there is to understand how those processes work and why certain things that you wish would happen do not happen and learning how to navigate that system. So that's something we did. So example is like when COVID-19 struck, almost all projects in North Korea, uh, humanitarian, education came to a halt. And we spent like close to a year persuading our partners to switch to online education. And we became the first entity that was able to get online education up and running during COVID-19 with North Korea. And in the process, we learned a lot of things, right? So we learned that, you know, one is that there were a lot of stakeholders, obviously, who were looking very closely as an experiment. We had a very ambitious program once. We said, we're going to do 10 sessions on this very far-fetched topic on digital entrepreneurship. And 
you know, that failed, we didn't manage to get them on board with that process. And we learned that, oh, you know, because there are so many stakeholders. So the more lessons you give them to approve, the more likely one person is going to say no. <laughs> but we went back and the next time we did it, we said, oh, you know, let's just get two sessions approved or four sessions approved at one time. So I think you learn how to work through the system to get to where you need to go by understanding the processes that underlie the system. What about the early days before you were trying to get things approved? Surely you had to start knowing who to approach, who would be able to help you and be sort of like your supporters, right? How do you figure that out in a completely closed country? I think it's a trial and error process, but it's also the right signaling. So when we went in there, I think there are a few things that we were very particular on, right? We said we had a mission, you know, we were not being paid a lot of money to do the work we're doing. And the North Koreans at the time, they were used to the impression, you know, very often in all this communist transition economies, there's a tendency to see foreigners as bags of money because it's a very poor country, right? So like whether it's China, Vietnam in early days, when you go in there, they think foreigner means money. And I always have to remind them that I don't have a lot of money. I just graduated from university. I'm doing this thing. Trying to find locals that have the right intention that they have the right interests and motivation for what we're doing. And it's a very different approach. Right? Because some people say, like, oh, you know, I'm just going to find like the most powerful guy and I'm bringing in tons of money. So they will speak to me and I'll get things done that way. I think it turns out that that is not the most sustainable approach <laughs> to getting things done in the country. And it's more often than not better to find people who just say, hey, look, you are interested in improving people's lives by sharing certain knowledge, encouraging certain areas of change. We find local partners who share that interest. And we cycled through quite a number of partners. Over time, we found the people that we wanted to work with that was a good fit for what we're doing. You mentioned earlier you had to also do due diligence on your partners. What did that look like? I think the basic thing is definitely always checking if they are from a sanctioned entity or if they are sanctioned individuals, which is normally, honestly, not hard because those people generally tend to be so high level. We never ever see them in the workshops. I don't think we ever had someone who on, was on the sanctions list. We had certain sectors that we saw as high risk at a certain point in time. So things like financial sector, we say, okay, we're going to stay away from it. We cannot teach technology, hard technology. We can talk about startups in general and the spirit of entrepreneurship, how people think about technology, but we don't actually teach like engineering or computer science or biology or something like this. Is it because the topics were too complex to cover? I think very much more so because of the sanctions. There's guidelines around technology transfer and we have to stay very much within the boundaries of that. I mean, you'll find that the North Koreans are actually very good at technical topics. They have good math and science education, but it is kind of more the softer topics where it is very hard to convey because, you know, imagine if you had lived your entire life in one system and now you say, hey, you know, learn this new system. You know, it's very difficult. We did that once where we brought North Koreans to Vietnam and Singapore and they were basically studying like how to create a law that allows people to buy land in the economic zones for industrial purposes. And we said, hey, here's an auction mechanism. This is a price mechanism. And that is the best way to make sure that you get the best value for the land and price it accordingly. And at the end of the trip, the North Koreans were like, this is just so complicated. We're just going to fix a price for all the land, all the economic zones. And it's not because these people are not smart. It's just that some of these things you grow up and it's so familiar to you is actually very unfamiliar to people, you know, who have grown up in an entirely different system. 
just because I have a legal background, I'm curious. I imagine you must have taught them things, concepts like rule of law, separation of power, which would have been totally foreign as well. Do you remember what the reaction was to lessons like that? Yeah, we had a lawyer, a volunteer lawyer who actually led a session on the law in Singapore. So it's like you talk about commercial law and in the North Coast was so fascinated by it because for them, it's more like ethics, right? It comes from the top and basically everything's an executive order, right? And they were so impressed. One of the ladies was like, oh, I want to study law. I want to go to Harvard Law School one day. So we gave her this book called, I think, Justice. It's a very popular book by a Harvard professor, I think Michael Sando. And it's very interesting because we, we had a bit of a discussion on what the rule of law means. I mean, how do we put it in a concept that people there could understand? We said, Oh, you know, it's when you can sue the government and win. <laughs> That's what we, our simple definition of the rule of law. And minds must have blown at that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fairly new to them. I mean, personally, in most, most cases, they don't go to lawyers as their first port of call for a lot of things. When you talked about bringing these North Koreans, you brought them to like, Singapore, to Vietnam, to Malaysia. I read in your blog that the whole selection process was grueling as well. And you were asking them what are future plans, accomplishments, and it was culturally unfamiliar questions. So do I interpret it as being, they never really think about what is my plan? What does my future look like? Is it just literally day by day survival? I would say definitely this is not the case. I think people do think about their lives, but I think it's just that I was very used to, at that time, you know, this Bain McKinsey style interviews, very Western interviews, right? People, you go in there and they say, oh, what accomplishment are you proud of? What is your successes? So it's like kind of a bit boastful, very different cultural approach to interviews, right? And for many North Koreans, they've never encountered anything like this. So you have to do a lot of digging, you know, we have, some of them have done really impressive things, but they're just like, oh, it's not me, it's my team, or the biggest thing I'm proud of is being a mother. I'm like, oh, but you also launched like these two super successful businesses. There is certain expectations when you do an interview. And when you're not trained in the norms of it, you cannot just put out a question, expect people to know what to answer, right? <laughs> so I think that was what we learned in that process. There was a lot of work digging out and trying to understand them as an individual, what they're doing. It's not something where I can just put that question out there and know that these people answer in a way that I expect someone who has been so used to this kind of questioning and interviews to be able to answer in the same way. So you brought North Koreans out, but you also brought people into North Korea. I read that you brought the ex-finance minister of Singapore, ex-chairman of Singapore International Airlines. In 2014, you also brought this coffee expert who was treated like some kind of celebrity and everyone seemed to know about him. I wonder what the process was like in just bringing foreigners into this really closed society? Yeah, so we normally go through a process where we brought volunteers in to run this kind of like three, two, three day workshops on a bunch of topics and we try to make it very interactive. The way it works is that normally we start with a certain area of topics that we want to work on. Then we put out a general call to volunteers. We come in, we do some screening to see who will be a good fit. And then we have to go through a process of applying for visas, for travel permissions, and for the workshop itself to be conducted in the country. And on the North Korean side, they will do an outreach, some to alumni, some to different organizations that are relevant to the topic to see if people are interested in attending the workshop. So generally, that's the way it works. And then, you know, we bring them there. They spend two days running the workshops. Most of them go there as kind of like quasi-tourists. So they want to do something more than just sightseeing. They want to engage in the country in a different way. But a big part is obviously to see the country and to get a better understanding of it. That's kind of what we do. This idea of grassroots or network type organizations really came about for me, being that our volunteers came from all over the world, right? We have 200 plus lecturers coming from 30 plus countries. 
it kind of just made me realize that, oh, you know, here we have a common cause, something that binds us together. But at the same time, a lot of these volunteers remain engaged, often beyond the workshop itself. So they go back, they share about what they did, the experience helps contribute to a deeper understanding of North Korea in a global environment. So say I'm a listener of this podcast. I find this very interesting. I'm a lawyer. Can I reach out to Chosen and be like, hey, I want to volunteer as well? Yeah. I mean, if it was pre-COVID-19, yes, a lot easier. We're still waiting for our borders to reopen. It will reopen someday. So we do hope to bring more people back in there when that happens. So I read during my research that one of your biggest costs was really just bringing the foreigners into the country. I wonder what's the financing model that you developed to make this sustainable? Because as you said, didn't have much money, you were losing interest. It sounded like everything was going against you. Yeah. So when we started doing it, we talked to a lot of people, did projects in the country. And I say we, because, you know, for me, it's like the work on North Korea belongs a bit to the past. You know, I still support the team. I volunteer now and then, but there's a team that runs it. When I started, we saw this boom and bust, right? You have periods where there was some interest because maybe people felt North Korea's opening and people contribute money to programs, normally institutional funding from the EU, from different governments. And then there'll be a period where politics become very rough and they shut down all the programs. I thought it was really bad because you just do not have that institutional knowledge, relationship and branding to build successful projects in the long term. So I talk about understanding of how to navigate the internal processes. Those are things that you lose every time you shut down a program. Relationships, people get burned, people move on inside the country and you never repute those kinds of relationships. So we said we want something that would last through thick and thin. And the way we did it was when we started our training program, we started as a volunteer organization. So people covered their own costs to join us in these programs. And then in some periods, we were able to get some grants here and there to supplement that cost. So what it meant was that there was a fairly manageable burn rate and we could tie through these ups and downs and be consistent in delivering the programs. And I wonder, how did you measure the impact that Chosen was creating? We used to have a database of close to 3,000 entrepreneurs we had trained. We try our best to track. One is just attendance. Like, do people come back over and over again at a basic level? Post-workshop, we run a survey to see what they've learned, what kind of exposure they're getting. And then in the longer term, we try to track some of these individuals that are doing some projects to see how those things are coming along, right? Did people launch a startup? Did they try to implement some policy change? Over time, it got harder as, you know, we get a much larger database of participants, but that's generally how we measure impact. I think the trickiness was that, you know, funders come and go. Some periods we have some funders, then some periods we don't have them. And so there really isn't a very consistent approach to measuring impact because each funder has their particularities or area of interest. And one thing we struggle is how do we maintain our true north? What do we focus on that's important to us as an organization? What do we measure? And also having to measure things that sometimes is tied to one specific sponsor that wants to measure a program in a certain way. Focusing on that North Star, is that how you kept your faith in the work that you were doing? Because I imagine it must have been very easy and tempting to give up at any point in time. Yeah, I struggled a lot because I hung on to the work for a long time. I hung on to it for probably almost a decade. But sometimes the feeling like the world is passing you by, right? Everyone's doing super exciting stuff outside. And honestly, for North Korea, for the amount of work and ingenuity you bring to a problem, you could probably achieve 10 or 100x the results outside. Because the smallest of things there, 
is very difficult to solve, right? Sometimes just getting a visa to go in, you know, the most minor of things results in huge headaches. I guess part of me felt like, oh, you know, I should have built an organization that could take care of itself much earlier and live a lot earlier. And another part of me is like, oh, you know, I had to spend a certain amount of time to make sure that we could see things to a point where we felt happy and confident about it and it would go in a certain direction. I think the biggest part that is most disappointing is less the work we do, which it felt overall is very meaningful, generated the impact that we wanted to see given the very modest resources we had, but the overall dynamics of North Korea's relationship to the rest of the world, where we hope that, that there was a pathway for North Korea and the West and South Korea to get the objectives, that there was a pathway for integration. I think that over time, people just get further and further away in terms of their positions. And I wonder if we have crossed this point of no return, where really just envision some sort of settlement to the Korean War, a peace treaty kind of re-engagement with the US and North Korea, for example, you know, whether we've gone past that point. What is the thing that you're proudest of having done, Chosen? In terms of Chosen Exchange, for us, we've always proven time and again that many things people thought was impossible to do in North Korea, we managed to do it. So when we first started, everyone said, oh, you cannot meet the North Koreans to take part in the program again. It's not possible to do it. We actually managed to get it done and we actually managed to do it very consistent. So we could build a rapport and build a constituency in the country. When we first did the online education program, many people from outside were against the idea. So say, oh, you know, once you do this online program, the North Koreans would never invite people in to do programs ever again. And I'm like, you're kidding me. <laughs> they are not going to invite people in because of COVID-19 and who knows how long they're not going to be able to invite people in. And we managed to push through and get it done. Given the scale of the program that we do is very small with the resources we have, we can at least say that we have proven certain things are possible. And I think that's the biggest value that we have done. So one final question before we move to after Chosen. You've mentioned that you had certain people who were tremendous supporters in what you were doing, role models as well, like yeah. Professor Moon Chung-in, George Yeo, Dominic Barton. I wonder how did they help you? Why were they your role models? George Yeo, our former foreign minister and globally a very well-recognized politician, he basically helped us by being very supportive joining us on a trip to North Korea, providing us a lot of advice and connections with people that were very helpful and overall giving us, showing us the moral support in a period where this was a very difficult issue to work with, right? People don't want to be associated with a difficult topic. And I think he had a lens on history. This is a big history buff and he's able to view things from that broader sense of history. And it was just very humble. I remember going in there and he went like five, six days. He brought his wife wanted to see how North Korea changed since his last trip, like almost a decade ago. And at the end of the trip, he gave a speech to a group of university students. It's very rare when you see a foreigner come in and is able to articulate over the course of five, six days. He's been absorbing everything, hearing what people have been saying, you know, trying to understand what's happening. And he gave this speech that you could just see the North Koreans nodding along and be like, this guy really understands us. This foreigner who has never lived here is now saying things that we understand and we buy into it. We believe in it. He's talking about how he felt North Korea should move forward. So that's him. Moon Jong-in, he used to be the national security advisor for a number of South Korean presidents, mainly on unification issues. And I had the opportunity to work with him closely as a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council. 
on Korean reunification. For me, it's just amazing because here's someone who's dedicated many, many decades of work to the very difficult task of trying to, in a sense, reconcile both careers. And so someone I look up to for that effort and energy and determination to make it happen. Dominic Barton helped us on a number of issues related to North Korea, had a passion for it, having served as the head of the McKinsey office in Korea. There was this introduction to Asia. Wasn't he global managing director of McKinsey? Yeah. yeah. He later became global managing director of McKinsey, but he got his start in Asia through the Korea office. So he's always paid a lot of attention to the Korea issue. When I first met him in Switzerland, probably a decade ago, I told him what I was doing and he was just super fascinated. He said, you know, we need to go out and chat so I can learn more about Korea. We did that. We went to a restaurant. I explained to him what I saw and what I'm hearing in North Korea. He was just a remarkable listener, took a bunch of notes. At some point he was like, oh, let's invite the North Koreans to the St. Gallen Symposium. This is one of the best forums I've been to in Switzerland and we made it happen. He's such a humble guy, such a intellectual omnivore. So when the North Koreans came in, he started saying, oh, you know, you guys, you have a national philosophy, it's called Juche, blah, blah, and made some joke about it. Wow, this guy knows his stuff, which is amazing. Very helpful person, very humble. Someone I look up to, I can learn so much from. You started in December of 2008. You stopped being chairman in December 2019, which is 11 years worth. At what point do you realize that it was time for you to move on to the next step? And did you know where you were going? The period 2016 and 2017 was very difficult. We were scaling up our impact up to the end of 2015. 2016, I remember I was coming in very confident. We had an amazing year in 2015, lots of great programs. And we felt overall things was heading in the right direction. Then on January 6th, the North Koreans did nuclear tests and the reaction after that was bad because there was a ratcheting up of sanctions, of pressure. And in turn, on the North Korean side, they reacted by being more hardline and doing more tests and missile launches. We went in this two-year cycle of just ever escalating violence. You know, I remember there was this whole fire and fury. I don't know if people remember that. When Donald Trump was threatening retaliation on North Korea and North Korea, the U.S., it was very depressing two years, right? You saw everything you built just kind of unwinding. I told myself that I would see things through this two years. And then at the end of the two years, we went into this brief deton, the summit between Donald Trump and the North Koreans. And I at least wanted to get past that period. Hopefully things will be on a better footing and see the organization through to that point. And I managed to do it. At that time, I decided it was time to move on. It was the recognition that the success of what I've built is that it goes on and runs itself. I shouldn't have to be too heavily involved in the work that comes next. We successfully made that transition. There was a lot of learning and, and you know, it's, you need to find the right people, right? You know, I've done it in a way that both myself and everyone involved could remain involved, but not have it become full-time work for anyone. Was it difficult for you to let go? I imagine you feel as though your identity was tied to this and suddenly you're letting it go and someone else is running this which is essentially your baby. Yeah, definitely so. I think, I think that was the thing I struggled with the most. Right? There were so many points where I was like, oh, you know, I should move on. But I just felt so much responsibility towards what I've built. It was so much a part of me. Now in hindsight, you just feel like, oh, 10 years isn't a, that long a part of your life. But there's a part of me that felt that oh, I was giving up so much that I could never move on, that this is what I am known for. In hindsight, I realized that some things you have to pivot faster. You have to make decisions around these things faster. 
because that's just the reality, right? There are things that you can change and there are many things you cannot change. What we couldn't change was the general dynamic or interest on the North Korean issue or the willingness of major state actors to come together on an agreement on the future of the Korean Peninsula. Those are just issues that are too big for us to have a very direct influence on. And that was the end of episode 93, part one. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywife.com forward slash 93. If you've enjoyed this episode, could you take a time to just head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review? Every review really helps this podcast to grow and reach a wider audience. And don't forget to head over to tune into episode 93, part two, to learn all about Jeffrey's journey into the Web3 world. How his extensive working exposure in places like North Korea and Vietnam meant that he was acutely aware of the need for a medium like Bitcoin. The problem he is trying to solve right now with Pogo, why he is currently working with the Kazakhstan government, and so much more. So do stick around and head over to listen to part two right now.